Good morning, everybody. Um, today, we're going to do something a little bit different. As I said, uh, on the weekends, I was going to try to take a look, look a little more at some of the prophetic passages and kind of show how um, it, I've kind of taken a different view on some of these prophetic passages and how kind of looking at the passages in a in a different light have kind of and helped me to make more sense of some of these prophecies. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. This is probably going to be a little bit long today, but our title is, or what we will be discussing is, we will be discussing the topic of coming, uh, coming in the clouds um, as part of one of Jesus' uh, prophecies. So I got my cup of coffee here. I hope you've got something. Um, I'm just going to take my time, kind of enjoy this a little bit, but in today's discussion, we're going to explore how examining Bible prophecies without a preconceived interpretation imposed on the text and uh, considering the scriptures, historical context, and original audience can significantly impact one's understanding of the prophecies in the Bible. Specifically, this could influence how one would interpret the Olivet Discourse, for instance, the prophecies of Daniel, and many aspects of the prophecies found in the book of Revelation. In our earlier blog, we explored how the second person plural in the synoptic gospels implies that the prophecies spoken of by Jesus at that time would be fulfilled within their own generation. Specifically, the passage reads, Surely I say unto you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. That's Matthew 24, 34. During our last study of this particular text, we discovered that some of the extraordinary statements um, were made about the return of Jesus. These include the arrival on clouds, the sun being darkened and the mood reddening, uh, the falling of the stars from the sky. And while it's inevitable that Jesus did make references to these things, their intended meaning may still need to be clarified. As a result, there remains a question about how these passages should be interpreted. By approaching the Olivet Discourse without any preconceived notions, Jesus assured his immediate audience that the events he spoke of would occur during their lifetimes. Even those who reject the accuracy of the Bible and the concept of Christ's sacrifice can see that Jesus addressed his original audience, not a future one 2,000 years later. While critics claim that Jesus was a false prophet because the events he described uh, did not occur, but it's important to clarify which events they're referring to because as previously discussed, all of the things uh, Jesus prophesied regarding his disciples did in fact come to pass. Critics uh, frequently argue that Jesus was a false prophet because they refer to the more dramatic events such as Jesus coming in the clouds, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling from the sky as not being fulfilled. These statements can be a stumbling block for readers who take them too literally and rigidly as they cannot be historically verified as being literally fulfilled. However, upon closer examination of the scriptures, it becomes clear that these statements were meant to be taken symbolically and not literally. Therefore, it's consistent with interpreting 
these demonstrative statements in a symbolic fashion rather than in a wooden and literal sense as critics often do. Jesus was a prophet, a priest, and a king. It's widely recognized that Jesus held these titles, prophet, priest, and king. And this is supported by various passages in both the Old and the New Testament. Psalms, for instance, Psalms 10, 1 and 4, the Old Testament predicts the coming of a king who will rule eternally and serve as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And many scholars interpret this prophecy as referring to the Messiah, who would fulfill both roles as king and priest. Additionally, the Olivet Discourse, which prophesies of the destruction of the temple, confirms Jesus' status not only as a priest and a king, but also as a prophet. When Jesus prophesied, he prophesied in a manner that did not differ in style or language from the Jewish prophets that, that went before him. Therefore, while these prophecies may not have been fulfilled literally, they were definitely fulfilled in a symbolic fashion, just as Jesus had intended. To properly understand the prophecies of the New Testament, specifically ones in the book of Revelation, it's essential to understand the Old Testament prophecies and it, it, their symbolism. With this foundation, it's possible to interpret the book of Revelation with a little better insight. The books of Matthew, Hebrews, and Revelation all have strong Jewish influence in their content and language. The book of Revelation is known for its apocalyptic symbolism, and that was a standard literary style in both the Jewish and the Christian communities um, in the texts that they wrote um, at that particular time. So the phrase coming in the cloud is mentioned multiple times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. However, it should not be taken literally, like not it shouldn't be taken literally. Like say for instance, the phrase it's raining cats and dogs. It may not be fully that phrase, it's raining cats and dogs, may not be fully understood in other languages, but it's considered an English idiom or a figure of speech. Likewise, expressions like I'm so hungry I could eat a, a, a horse. Um, these are hyperboles or hyperbolic statements that English people, English speaking people commonly use, accept and we understand. Well, if one understands that other languages such as Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic also have idioms and figures of speech, one would be less inclined to interpret these phrases literally. Consider the text of the Old Testament prophecies, their interpretations, and the symbolisms used throughout the Bible. It's, it's reasonable to con consider that Jesus may have used these phrases in a similar fashion, and there's evidence to support this. For instance, the phrase coming in the cloud is used, coming in the clouds rather, is used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for God's judgment and establishing his kingdom. Consider for a moment the text. Um, according to Isaiah in 19, um, chapter 19, verse 1. I gotta take a sip of my coffee here for a minute. He says, in Isaiah 19, 1, he says, Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Now, this passage metaphorically describes God's judgment upon Egypt, symbolizing his presence, power, and judgment using clouds. It's not meant to be interpreted literally, 
In 568 BC, Babylon conquered Egypt, fulfilling this prophecy and destroying Egypt's power and influence. The, idol, the idol, idols worshipped in Egypt were destroyed, and the nation was thrown into chaos and despair, melting their hearts. Let's consider uh, another text in Daniel. The next text reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one coming like the Son of Man. And now watch this. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Here the phrase coming in the clouds is used to describe the arrival of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. I would argue that would be God the Father to receive dominion and establish an everlasting kingdom. We argue that this is not a literal description of a physical arrival on clouds, but rather a symbolic representation of the establishment of God's kingdom. So similarly in Psalms 18, um, this is what it says. It says um, of God, it says he bowed, uh, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherubim and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire break through his clouds. Well, here the, the psalmist uses the metaphor of God coming on the clouds to describe his power and dramatic intervention on behalf of his people. It's not a literal description of a physical arrival on the clouds, but a symbolic representation of God's power and sovereignty. Therefore, we would argue that based on these examples and the historical context in which they were written, the phrase coming in the cloud should not be taken literally, but rather as a metaphorical representation of God's power and sovereignty. Need another cup of coffee, sip of coffee here. Okay, but what about phrases like the sun will be darkened? The phrase the the sun being darkened is not a new concept, nor is it unique to the sayings of Jesus. The phrase can be seen in passages in the Old Testament as well. It's reasonable to argue that Jesus, being a prophet, utilized imagery that his audience was familiar with as he employed the same symbols as the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, it's highly reasonable um, or possible rather that the sun being darkened represents a period of severe judgment or turbulence. Recall for a moment the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 13.10 For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogant of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Here, the darkening of the sun is a metaphor of God's judgment on Babylon, which was fulfilled when the Persians captured the city in 559 BC. Similarly, we believe that the prophecy of Joel also applies in this case. Nonetheless, 
It's important to note that the prophecy of Joel was explicitly aimed rather at Jerusalem, the center of Jewish power, as a warning uh, for refusing the redemption, namely Jesus. Joel says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of that great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, in this text, the day of the Lord denotes a period of judgment and salvation. The dimming of the sun and moon represent a um, a signal of the impending judgment that will fall upon the world as prophesied um, to occur in the end times. Nonetheless, a caveat is attached even as we employ the term end times. We might contend that some might contend that Joel was referring to a uh, era future to us, the modern reader. However, the realization of this prophecy has already transpired for us, and we'll delve into that. Um, uh, we'll delve into that further um, a little bit later. However, returning to the subject of the sun being darkened, we have in the book of Amos, for example, the prophet using his uh, this imagery again to describe the impending the impending judgment on Israel. In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down and 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 darken um, and then. I will make the sun go down at noon and dark and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mornings and all your singing into weeping. And I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. And I will make it that uh, at that time, like a morning for an only sun and the end of it, like a bitter day. So we can deduce here that the darkening of the sun is a sign of mourning and impending judgment and that the people are being called to repent. The same would be valid for the prophecy of Joel in the book of Joel. The prophet declares the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Again, the sun is a sign of the coming judgment. The sun being darkened rather is a, is a sign of the coming judgment that the Lord will bring. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to this prophecy in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Peter quotes the passage from Joel and declares that it's been fulfilled in their midst. He says, but this is when they came up and wanted to know what was going on with regard to all these people speaking in tongues. He said, this is what the prophet was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days that God will pour out his spirit. Um, I will pour out my spirit. On all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men's servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heavens above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapor, and smoke. Now, here's the thing. On the one hand, he's saying that um, that the fact that these people were speaking in tongues is a sign that Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled. But they also knew the rest of that prophecy because the the rest of the prophecy said, I will show wonders in heaven above the signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the prophecy about them speaking in tongues and, and having dreams was the same prophecy that said at that time judgment would come. So first we notice Peter claims that the prophecy of Joel has been fulfilled during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The signs in the heavens, including the darkening of the sun, were a prelude to the coming of the Lord and the salvation available to all who call upon his name. 
Once again, this interpretation suggests that the darkening of the sun was not to be taken literally, but rather as a symbol of coming judgment and salvation. So many scholars argue that in terms of its fulfillment, its imagery was used to describe the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In the case of the sun, um, it, it, in this case rather, the, the case of the sun being darkened, we can see that this prophecy was both literally and metaphorically fulfilled because God didn't want this moment to be missed on any account. Follow our logic for a moment as we as we build this case. Okay, I want to talk about some weird first century stuff. A solar eclipse cannot occur during a full moon because a solar eclipse happens when the moon passes between the sun and the earth, blocking the sun's ray and casting a shadow on the earth. On the, on the other hand, a full moon occurs when the earth is between the sun and the moon, with the sun's light illuminating the entire lunar surface facing the earth. Therefore, a solar eclipse can only occur during a full moon when the moon is between the sun and the earth. Thus, in the case of the crucifixion, the darkening of the sun that was observed was not a solar eclipse because it happened during the period of Passover, which takes place during a full moon. The Gospel of Matthew records the darkness that was covered over the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Um, but this darkness was not a solar eclipse. Well, some of Jesus' other statements about the future may be taken literal uh, um, and to be anticipated. Other statements may be more symbolic um, of the catastrophic events that were unfold that were unfolding and about to unfold before his disciples. The Talmud. Um, is a collection of Jewish texts that includes commentary on the Torah and other writings. It also records the unusual events before the temple's destruction. In Trakasuka 29a, it's written that the sun was in eclipse for three hours and everybody agreed that it was not because of an astronomical phenomena since such eclipse could not take place at the time of a full moon. The passage suggests that they understood that the eclipse, what the eclipse was, a supernatural occurrence perceived as a warning of impending disaster. So then you have what Josephus records, and so Josephus, according to the historian Josephus, strange signs and portents led to the siege of Jerusalem, including a comet and a vision of armies in the air engaged in conflict. It's quite incredible. In this work, The Jewish War, he recounts several unusual phenomena leading up to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Let me quote some. Beside these signs, he says, a few days after that feast, on the 21st day of the month of Artemis, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the, the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature, nature as to deserve such signals. He goes on to say, for before the setting, before the sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor 
were seen running among the clouds and surrounding the cities, um, and this would be the cities of Judah. He goes on to say, moreover, at that feast, which we call Passover, as the priests were going in by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. He goes on to say that after they heard a sound of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. That's pretty incredible. These accounts of strange signs and portents are significant because they add to the historical context of the siege of Jerusalem, providing insight into the mindsets of the people at the time. They also underscore the apocalyptic themes in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel and the book of Revelation. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up, trying to make sense of this all. While we may interpret the text of the Olivet Discourse and in the book of Revelations as literal, and thus assume that these events are yet to be fulfilled, one must also consider the possibility that these passages may have already been fulfilled. It's popular to assume that that events such as the sun not giving light, the moon turning to Uh, turning black and stars falling from the sky have not been witnessed and therefore must yet to um, must yet be something that's going to come however as we've tried to explain here and earlier these passages are not necessarily meant to be taken literally but symbolically so considering this it's not unreasonable to interpret these passages as having been fulfilled in the past specifically during the temple's destruction in 70 AD. This interpretation aligns with the historical records and explains the the symbolism used in these passages very well.